Canto 9 of The Paradise is a development and profound extension of Dante's reflections on the nature of erotic love and how it can carry you into heaven. Adding in now this theme which has come up in the last couple of cantos of redemption and how those two things work together. And the basic theme is intimated in the opening tercets. You remember that Dante has been speaking with his friend, the king and kindred spirit, Charles, and Dante, the poet, opens the canto by directly addressing Clements, who was probably Charles's wife. And what he says is, fair Clements, Charles told me more things. He prophesied of terrible things that were going to happen to you. But he added, say nothing, because the tears of those who wronged you will catch up with them in the end. Let the years go by, he says, implying this deep theme of the canto, which is the true nature of your soul, whether it be good longing for the divine or bad longing for revenge, will catch up with you in the end. Clements can trust that, and the canto is going to unpack a little bit of quite why. And Dante then tells us that Charles himself turns his gaze towards the sun and rejoins those souls who are encircling the divine love. And then Dante the poet addresses us and addresses humanity and says, ask yourself, what is your soul directed towards? What is your heart's true love? That is really the key question in all its subtle nuance, not its outward form. And it's an appropriate question because it is one that is felt clearly and directly here in the sphere of Venus, in the presence and spirit, the radiance of the God of love. Another soul, flame, then moves towards Dante and he can see um, the joy with which it's doing so. It too wants to give more joy to Dante in this circle. And Dante just turns to Beatrice and checks that he receives her blessing, um, which I think is by way of saying, just checking that his love is aligned with the divine love as he sees it in her love and beauty. And then, interestingly, he actually turns to this soul in a slightly um, probing, um, jesting question and says to the soul, prove to me that your thoughts can read my thoughts because they mirror the divine thoughts. And it's an indication as to how telepathy works. Um, it works because the individual receiving the thoughts of another is actually fully aligned with the divine thought that, as it were, knows and sees it all. Um, perhaps here on earth, those who have capacities of telepathy or occasionally experience such things, it's a bit like um, a glance of light on a mirror that occasionally illuminates their minds with the thoughts of another. But what Dante is saying to this new soul here now is, are your thoughts, is your mind, is your soul 
firmly aligned with the divine sight and so can clearly and straightforwardly read my thoughts. Of course, it is the case, um, but this nice little way that Dante jests and joshes with this new soul in delight, in love, is also illuminating for us. It gives something to us. And then the soul beautifully and extensively reveals who she is by describing where she's from. She is Kunitsa, and she is a sister, actually, of a tyrant who we met boiling in the bloods of Malavolge down in hell. Um, and she's quite a colourful character, in fact, which immediately raises the question of how come she's here. It turns out that in her earthly life, she had four husbands, she had two celebrated lovers, although ended up her life in charitable work, um, which actually is probably how Dante the Pilgrim knew her in mortal life. Um, she was older by the time that he got to know her, but would have known of her past. And so for readers of Dante, it raises this question of how quite a notorious lover has ended up in the sphere of heaven, associated with love. And what she says is that she can now smile gaily upon her life. She, I think, has accepted all that love brought to her in her life, with its struggles, with its overflowing in the sense that must have actually hurt and damaged other people, let alone herself. Um, that certainly brought her a kind of infamy in life. But she has looked on this all and accepted it all, welcomed it into herself. And it reminds me particularly, actually, of the first terrace of purgatory, where we met the those who are wrestling with their pride, um, weighed down by great weights upon their back, with this sense that they too had to be able to look at all that they have been in life, even if it brought them shame upon reflection, um, because only by accepting their all could they become capable of seeing and knowing the all that is the divine all, the cosmic all. You can't cut off bits of yourself hoping that will leave you pure in order to enter heaven. You have to be able to accept everything right down into the reaches of the inferno, right into the darkest parts of yourself in order to be now in the presence of the divine where all is seen, where all is known, where all is experienced. And that is what Kunitsa has been able to do. Incidentally, this business about seeing all and knowing all um, is hinted at quite a few times throughout the canto. We've already seen it in relation to the discussion around telepathy. But it also opens on to the second theme of the canto, which is how erotic love is linked to redemption. And what Kunitsa says is that I myself forgave all in me. And I think this amplifies the notion of redemption which we had in the last couple of cantos, which actually that redemption comes by alignment and harmony with the divine life in the cosmos, by this movement of unfolding, giving, outflowing, prototypically in the incarnation. And it's when you can yourself 
mirror and reflect that dynamic that redemption is found. So it's this very different notion of redemption um, which you will often hear in the church which is about a kind of intervention that cuts through, that makes demands, that seeks vengeance for sin. Um, that is being changed here again with this testimony of Kunitsa that it was actually in her smiling acceptance of herself, welcoming it all as the outpouring of, well, in her case, the spirit of Venus, the spirit of love, with all its contours, with all its differences, with all its shadow as well as its light. That is what has carried her into this high heaven. It's the quality of your love, of your desire, of your eros that really matters, not just its outward forms. This idea that the deepest truth of your soul will out in the end. And it brings up another contrast um, with Francesca um, in the early stages of the Inferno, who, as you'll recall, was blown and swept around by love too, but chaotically, um, because it didn't have this deep centering, even if it was um, lost in the ups and downs of her life, as it, as it was in Kunitsa's case. Um, nonetheless, it was there for her, um, unlike it seems for Francesca. It's another contrast that we can do these vertical readings of now that we're in paradise and see how both in the Inferno, also on the Terrace of the Pride, I think, um, the differences are being drawn out um, for us to see more clearly now, as of course is appropriate in heaven. She then points to the soul who is flaming next to her and, without naming him at this point, says that he was famous in life. Um, and again, that makes you wonder what kind of fame, um, because the desire for glory and for self-adulation um, has been seen to trap and therefore condemn people earlier in the Divine Comedy, whereas here his fame has released him into the fullness of life. And we get the sense that his passion is what has carried him here. Um, so similarly, passion per se is not a bad thing. In fact, you might say you need passion to carry you into paradise. Um, I think it's another reflection on Christ's passion, the cross too, the significance there being that he gave himself fully to his life, to his love, to those around him, to humanity. Um, it's that love side of his passion that is what that what really counts, you know, not the suffering per se. And it also reminds us of Boethius, who Dante drew on, um, and in the Consolation of Philosophy, Boethius learns that there is a kind of fame um, that can bring eternal glory, because it's the fame that seeks to transmit eternal things, not just have the light dance and reflect off itself. And no doubt this soul had to go through some of those struggles, um, but its truth, its inner most secret desire, willed out, uh, won out in the end, and so brings it to this circle of the heavens as well. We're going to learn more about him shortly. But Kunitsa keeps talking for now, and now the conversation turns darker, um, and what she says actually is, is really very, very bitter indeed, um, because she tells of wars in her time, and particularly singles out um, the Bishop of Feltra, 
who, to cut a long story short, um, whose religiosity, whose passion, whose love actually made him adhere and cling to the letter of the law, bringing great bloodshed in his time. So much so that he completely lost touch with the spirit of things, with the spirit of love. His soul, we're led to believe, at least in this moment, was so dark that he couldn't find his way to paradise. Um, there's going to be other prelates um, who are condemned here in this canto. Um, and the contrast, I think, is that even though on the surface they seem to have given their lives to God's love, inside they found themselves actually doing quite the opposite. Um, and again, um, the eternal nature of their soul has meant that they can't find themselves, at least so far as Cunetza can see, in this circle of love in heaven. The really crucial question now coming through quite clearly is, does your life reflect any of God's light? Whether it be in telepathy, in acceptance, in love, um, in passion. And it's a really important question. You know, nothing less than your direction here and in eternity rests upon it. Knitza then turns her eyes back to the higher light and she rejoins the whirling circle of souls around Dante and Beatrice. And the other soul who she had talked about, the one who was famous in this world, stepped forward. Um, he said to appear to Dante now like a ruby reflecting the sun's rays. And this is a reference to the conviction that the light bouncing in a certain kind of ruby could burn away your vanity and so leave your passion pure. Dante the Pilgrim offers us a reflection before this soul actually speaks. Um, and it's a reference to joy and smiling. And what it amounts to is, um, he says to us, look, in the high heavens, joy makes soul glow more and more brightly. On earth, he says, joy makes people smile. And that smile is an intimation, perhaps, of the deepest part of their soul and where they're being carried towards. Um, but he says down below in the inferno, joy actually makes people grow sullen. It makes their heads bow. It darkens them. And the smile, therefore, or the sullenness, is a kind of little test, a litmus test um, of the state of our soul. Um, it's a little guide um, for us readers here now. Do we smile at joy or does it make us um, turn inwards, maybe with bitterness, maybe with shame, maybe with regret? Um, if it does, um, then that's something to work on and to recover um, a truer part of yourself. Dante the Pilgrim then turns to this new soul and again does so very clearly in a kind of flirtatious, erotic manner. Again saying, look, you know what I want. Um, Dante coins verbs even to express this. Um, he talks about being in you, in me. In his neologisms, the words interpenetrate one another. Um, and so Dante the poet, as much as Dante the pilgrim, um, are clearly enjoying this erotic frisson here now. They're fully rejoicing in the life of Venus, in its flirtatious as well as its joyful and glowing qualities. 
And the soul now reveals himself. Um, he's Folkway, and he was a troubadour, hence his fame in life. And he introduces himself by referencing not just where he's from, um, but also um, referencing a number of myths in quick succession. And they are stories of individuals who all died for love, who, as it were, couldn't ride into the heavens out of their passion and desire. Um, one is Dido, who we've um, heard of quite a few times now, um, whose love um, turned in on herself when it was thwarted by Aeneas um, and she commits suicide. And the second is a woman called Phyllis, who was thwarted to um, kills herself and actually is turned by the gods into an almond tree. Um, and then the third um, reference is to the lover of Hercules, Iole, and what happens there is that um, Hercules' wife hears of this. Um, she makes him a coat that is impregnated with um, a substance given to her by Nessus, the centaur, which Nessus, the centaur, has told her will make Hercules love her again. But actually, it turns out that she's tricked by Nessus. Do you remember we met Nessus in the Inferno too? Um, and Nessus tricks Hercules, his wife, and it's actually a poison and ends up killing Hercules. Um, so Folkway is giving the introduction to himself by making us think about, again, you know, where love can take us, where it can lead us, and is it leading us to heaven? He then echoes Kunitsa's insight that it was because he learned to smile at himself, forgiving um, himself fully, that he is able to have ridden love to this heaven. Um, to add the reflection in a slightly different way using the Jungian terms that Helen Luke does in her commentary. Um, she points out that this is about embracing the shadow, um, those parts of ourselves that we dislike for one reason or another and try to push away from ourselves. Um, and it's a real struggle to turn to the shadow and embrace it because it can make us feel the shame, anger, um, curse ourselves. Um, but the great risk of doing that in Jungian terms is that we also cut off a large part of our energetic selves, the side of us that actually might give us a fuller, more complete life. Um, and that, in psychological terms, is the risk which Dante is exploring here in more spiritual terms, that by cutting off that energy, by denuding ourselves, we might actually end up encircling smaller epicycles in our life that actually just turn in on themselves and don't really take us anywhere as opposed to having the fullest access to all that we are by accepting it joyously and then we have access to the divine love and the divine energy that can gradually enable us to circle the one love. Folkway then says to Dante you're going to want to know who this flame is standing next to me um, you know one flame introduces itself, then points to the one next to it. Uh, there's a kind of generosity um, in the soul's discussions with Dante, um, an unfolding um, of the conversation, even as divine life unfolds. And it turns out that this is Rahab. She is the, the whore of Jericho, um, who actually hides Joshua's spies, um, and so saves them in the biblical story. And I think the implication here is that Whilst, as a prostitute, she gave her body to men, there was something in that very action that meant that when 
the moment of her life truly came, she was able to offer herself to save others' lives, um, even in a darker sense of giving yourself, um, might be learned the truer sense of giving life for greater life, and so now being able to enjoy that life here in heaven. And in fact, she's praised by Folkway um, very strikingly, fulsomely. Um, she's said to have been the first of the pre-Christian souls to have entered heaven, um, almost as if Christ rushed to find her when he harrowed hell. Um, so that underlines just how significant this reflection on erotic love is. Um, you remember that it had come up for Dante when he first enters purgatory um, and had the dreams um, where possessive love had trapped him and it was only when he realised that actually there was another love represented by the appearance of Lucia that was carrying him, empowering his ascent up the mountain. Um, this same insight is now given full expression, particularly when Dante is told about Rahab. And the canto ends with Fulquay now turning again on the church, um, on the prelates who follow the letter of the law and don't understand the spirit of divine love because of it. Um, and the setting now is actually in Dante's Florence. Um, it's more reflections on the civil wars of Florence um, and the horrors that that brought. Um, Fulquay says, your priests, your prelates, became obsessed with the canon law, um, as you can even see if you look at the books of canon law with all their jottings and writings in the margin. Their love, their passion turned in on itself in a kind of fundamentalism and a kind of legalism, um, a tremendous warning again of how the religious spirit can look in exactly the wrong direction and so can bring curse and condemnation upon the individuals as it had done for many of the clergy in Florence. And the dark ending, in a way, underlines the key question, the pressing question, which is when you truly look into your soul, what do you see? What do you see of your desires, of your eros? What is it really wanting? Can you accept the dark side of that, the mistakes, the struggles, and the things that can feel embarrassing or shaming? Um, there's a great hope in that because erotic love always contains those elements but that's not to say it's wrong this is quite the opposite of a puritanical teaching about eros dante is developing his spirituality of erotic love to say no actually by accepting it in all its different contexts its different forms but being in touch with its true essence that is what can carry us into the heavens it's an energy we absolutely crucially need. But the question is, is it an energy that traps us because it wants to possess and control? Or is it at the end of the day an energy that can release us because it wants to give even as the cosmos gives, even as the divine gives in an outpouring that can lead to us encircling the divine love as well?